you all know this story. There was a war that had been waging for about 10 years. And the Greeks were unable to force themselves through the walls of a city known as Troy. So the Greeks planned to trick these Trojans into letting them into the city without force. So a man named Odysseus ordered that they would build a large wooden horse that could hold about 12 soldiers. They wheeled the horse to the entrance of the city and left it. And the Trojans came out. They looked at the horse, and they saw it as, as a type of peace offering or a gift. And they, they believed that the Greeks were admitting defeat. And so they thought, okay, nice gift here, nice wooden, good-looking wooden horse. We'll take it. And so they, uh, they opened the, the city gates, and they wheeled the wooden horse in, and they set it up on display, and overnight, as everyone was asleep, the soldiers came out of the horse and took the city from that point. This morning, we're going to read a passage of Scripture where Jesus teaches us and warns us about judging with wrong judgment. I think if we could take a case in point and say, don't judge by appearances, but judge by right judgment. If they had, they wouldn't have taken it into the city and things would have gone much different. I'd like to start uh, this morning by looking at verse 24, which is the last verse that we'll actually cover this morning. But I want to start there because in verse 24, Jesus hits home his point. And so I want to read that. And uh, then we'll begin to look at the text from verse 1. He says in verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We make judgment calls every day. Small judgment calls. What am I going to have for breakfast? That's a small, that's a pretty small judgment call. What am I going to wear this morning? I made a judgment call on my outfit today, okay? You may like it, you may not. I made a judgment call to wear what I'm wearing today, and you know what? So did you. Small judgment call, though, isn't it? A judgment call nonetheless, right? Then we make uh, moderate judgment calls. You might call them big, big judgment calls. Relationships how to build relationships, how to maintain unity in relationships, uh, or maybe things concerning your own personal health. What kind of diet am I going to have? Right? What kind of exercise? Those are, those are big decisions in life, you know, routine things. But then there are life-changing judgment calls that we make as well, right? Who am I going to marry? What job am I going to have? What degree am I going to get in college? These are pretty life-altering judgment calls, are they not? We're going to see that Jesus will make an indictment and then also a correction based on three wrong judgment calls of the people. But these particular judgment calls were not things trivial, such as what clothes you're going to wear or even what relationship you're going to be in. You know what? It's even greater judgment calls than who I'm going to marry or what my profession will be for life. The judgment calls that these people were making were far greater because they had eternal consequences. So I want to look, starting at verse 1, 
at these judgment calls the people were making and how Jesus then concludes by saying, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So let's look at verse 1 together. Verse 1 says, After this Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, pause right there. After this, after what? After the feeding of the 5,000, and later we're gonna, there's going to be a time marker, and so many people have decided it's, it's somewhere around six months after the feeding of the 5,000. That's what many people believe, um, somewhere in, the, in, that, in that time. So when he says after this, he's saying, okay, moving on to the next big event that I want to tell you about. He went about in Galilee. Now, he was already in Galilee. Capernaum and Bethsaida and all these different areas were in Galilee, but Galilee, remember, was a region. And so it says he went about in this whole region of Galilee. And that's where Nazareth was. That's where Cana was. Um, this is north, north of Judea and, and uh, Jerusalem. And so this is where Jesus was going about. He was going about in this particular region. He was not going about in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And he didn't want to be there. John 5.18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this was the reason. And when it says the Jews, remember that it's talking about the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, not every single individual who was a Jew. Okay, so these particular religious leaders were wanting to kill Jesus. They wanted him dead because they thought he was blaspheming the name of God. So Jesus said, I'm going to stay up north where things are okay. And I'm not going to go down south into to Judea where, where everyone wants to kill me. And we might think, well, that's a, probably a pretty good judgment call for right now. Um, but later he does make the judgment call to go to that very region, doesn't he? Look at verse 2. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Your translation may say feast of tabernacles. Uh, what was this feast? Well, briefly, um, this particular feast ran for seven days. And then on the eighth day, there was just this large celebration. And a Jewish historian named Josephus, who you may know, uh, said that this was actually the most popular of all the feasts, three. Uh, this was the most popular of the three feasts that required people to come to Jerusalem. And uh, so for seven days, they would make huts or booths or little mini tabernacles uh, and they would live in them for these seven days to commemorate the time that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness. Okay, so this was the time. This festival or this feast had come, and so everyone was making these little huts, and they were living in them for seven days. It kind of sounds, it kind of sounds fun. They were camping kind of. So if you, had, if you, if you lived in the city, though, uh, where would you do this? They actually would do it on their rooftop. And so they would go to their roof, and they would build these little huts, and they would stay in them for the seven days. Okay, so it was a feast of ingathering, though, which means that all the men would, were required to come to Jerusalem. Okay, so that's important because we go to verse 3, uh, something comes up. So Jesus was going about in Galilee. He was not going about in Judea. And it's important that John tells us that by the way, there was an important feast happening at this time in Jerusalem. So verse 3. So 
His brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 5 is so important. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Okay, so the brothers come around him. By the way, let's just pause for a second. Who are these brothers? Uh, is it possible that Jesus had brothers? Uh, yes, it is possible that Jesus had brothers. Uh, there is no uh, theological reason that Jesus could not have brothers. The only problem would be if Jesus had actual brothers who were older than him. That would be a problem. Um, so here's, I just want you to hear this, though. There are really three ways that people try to understand uh, the brothers here. I just want to read Mark 6.3. If you're taking notes, that, that's a good reference, Mark 6.3. Is not this, so you're talking about Jesus. Jesus was popular at the time, and people were spreading word about who this Jesus guy was, and some of them said this. Is not this the carpenter? That's where we get that. That's significant, isn't it? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. Now, when we read that, a couple different historical uh, understandings have come from that. Number one, which is the easiest, which I think is uh, the most plausible is that these brothers and sisters are the younger half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. They are children of Mary and Joseph. They just were children born after Jesus was born. But they're only half-brothers because they don't have the same dad. Number two, who else could they be? Some believe that these are the sons and daughters of Joseph that they brought in from a pre that Joseph brought in from a previous marriage. Or, number three, they are cousins of Jesus, which neither of those seem to make any sense, but it, it's, it's important that you know the theological reason of why people think they need to come up with that, because there is a Roman Catholic doctrine uh, known as the perpetual virginity of Mary. And so when they read, oh, there's brothers and sisters of Jesus, that can't be. Who else could they be? Maybe there's cousins, because there's, there's nothing in the text that would suggest that they are his cousins, but there is every reason to believe that they are actually his brothers and sisters, which means that Mary was not a virgin her whole life. Um, anyway, that's a short little point there. That's, that's free stuff this morning. It has nothing to do with anything else. So his brothers say to him, these are the people, okay? His family. His family says to him, um, it's time for you to leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works you're doing. So notice, first of all, number one, that his brothers do not rope themselves in with being disciples. Um, go so that your disciples might see all that you're doing, and uh, you can kind of build your campaign a little bit. There's a bunch of people in Judea and in Jerusalem right now. And uh, if you're really going to be a big political leader, Jesus, well, let your brothers help you out here. Here's what you need to do. You need to capitalize on all these people getting together. And if you really are this great leader, the king, 
then you need to move yourself down to Judea. And, it, you know, back in the day, you'd get one of those cars that, that you could sit up on top of. You had the megaphone, and you'd drive through the streets, and you'd talk about your political campaign. That's what they wanted Jesus to do, in a sense. They wanted people to get on Team Jesus, and they saw a great opportunity for him to do so. Go. There's an opportunity for you to get more people on your side. If you really are who you say you are, if you really can do the things you say you do, then go show everybody. Make it public. Why are you staying up here, nice and safe and comfortable? Go where the action is. Go where the people are. So that's what the brothers wanted him to do. But it says in verse 5, for, that word is significant, for not even his brothers believed in him. For, because of this, or the reason they told him to go to Judea is because they did not believe in him. But it seems to be the opposite, doesn't it? It's, it would seem that they believed in him. You were the great king. Now go show everybody, Jesus. Because we believe in you, go make it known. But that's, that's not why. See, the brothers did not believe in him as the Savior, the Messiah. They just, well, let's think about maybe their motivation. What was their motivation? The brothers it seems, wanted glory in two different ways. Number one, they were seeking glory for their brother, their brother, not the Messiah, not the Christ, but for their brother. And second, that they might capitalize on his glory and be a little partakers in, hey, you know that guy, Jesus? That's my brother. Yeah, you could see how that would have benefits, right? If he was a great guy and everybody loved him, you say, yeah, that's my brother. You know? You're on the inside without having done any of the work. John 5.41, I do not receive glory from people. John 5.44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus had already been teaching about this, and John, John knows that we should have heard that teaching in chapter 5, and when we get to chapter 7, or this far in the text, there wouldn't have been chapters when he wrote it, but when we get this far that we already have that understanding, is that he wasn't seeking his own glory as a man, but he was seeking the glory of the Father. He was seeking the glory of God. You cannot seek the glory of God and seek the glory for yourself at the same time. So it gives us insight into the character of the brothers, is that they were seeking glory from men, either for themselves or for their brother or for both. So they said, go down to Judea, make a big thing about your campaign, and everybody's going to love you. Everybody's going to love you. They were great campaign managers. They were really speaking, talking, you know, talking him up, building his ego. Go down to Judea. No one who seeks to be known publicly stays in private. See, you need to go make yourself known, and everybody's going to love you. Go, here's what you need to do. Go down to Judea. Go right in the middle of everybody. Do some great miracles. I mean, just... I know you've been holding some stuff back. Do a big one right in the middle of everybody, and they're going to love you. They're going to love you. Is that the case? Is that the case that everybody loved him? No. It says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. 
if I go down there and do this, they are not going to receive me with open arms as you think. They are going to kill me. So here's wrong judgment number one. That the world, concerning the integrity of the world, that the world is willing to hear the gospel. That's the wrong judgment. The world is willing to hear the gospel. That's what the brothers thought. Go make yourself known. Go make your message known. Go do some great works. Go make a public display, and they're going to love you. They're going to eat it up. But that's not what they did. By appearances, it would seem as though the people would be pleased to hear a message of salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. Has that been your experience in this world? That people are pleased to hear a message of forgiveness and of mercy and grace and of salvation and eternal life. What of that is bad? Doesn't it seem like the world should just be ready, ready for that message? But are they? Or do they have hearts that actually hate the light of the gospel and they love the darkness of sin? In fact, isn't that what John tells us right from the beginning? The light came into the world and they love the darkness and not the light. So the brothers are wrong. The world is not ready and willing to hear the gospel, but instead right judgment would tell us that the world is unwilling to hear the gospel. Jesus knew this. That's why they hate me. They hate me. Why? Because I tell them that their works are evil. And who likes to be told to their face that you are a bad person? You are a bad person. If no one's ever told you in your life, you're bad, hear it now. You are a bad person. If you were a good person, you would not need a Savior. Thank goodness for the mercy and the grace of God that on bad people He has grace. He has had grace on all of us, bad, wretched people. And so our hearts should overflow in thanksgiving for this great Savior. Right judgment calls us to see that the light has come, but they hate it. People naturally seek their own glory, not the glory of God. We like to set ourselves up as God, not the true God. We like to worship that what is false or man-made and not God himself. Here's the temptation is that the temptation then is to change the gospel into something the world is ready and willing to hear. Isn't that what happens? Many times. The gospel gets changed into something that says, no, 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 you're not bad. You're, you're good. Um, but you need a savior. I don't know how to figure that part out. But... You're a good person, but aren't you thankful that we have Jesus to come and give us eternal life? How can that possibly be? But you know what? The, God, the, the, the world readily accepts that message, even though it's logically incoherent. Why do I need good news if there is no bad news? We must have bad news in order for there to be a necessity for good news. Let's not skip over that bad news. The bad news that sticks in our heart like a dagger and tears it open. I have nothing in me. There is nothing good in me. There is no one righteous, not even one. Certainly not me. But yet we have God and we have a great Savior. 
who rescues us from sin. Okay, so this is the first judgment. It's concerning what? It's concerning the integrity of the world at large. We think that they're ready and willing to hear this great gospel. No, the world hates it. But we have to put it in context of what happened in chapter 6. It says, yeah, people are going to hate it unless you're drawn to me by the Father. So that makes sense then, doesn't it? So then how is anyone ever able to come to the gospel? By the mercy of God on sinners. By the mercy of God on sinners. Okay, so next. Verse 10. Okay, so it leaves off here. He says, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Okay, so the brothers are now going up to... Judea, they're going to Jerusalem to the feast to celebrate with everyone else. And Jesus says, I'm not going. You guys go. It's important in the text, though, to realize that he didn't say, I'm never going. He just said, I'm not going right now, and I'm not going with you. That, that's important because of what happens next. Verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him. Grumbling is the word. There was much grumbling and muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Not publicly, but in private. So here's the first thing that Jesus does different already than what his brothers wanted him to do. He said, go, they said, go make a big public display. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. So when he comes in, he doesn't come in with fanfare. He goes in private by himself. And as he's entering, there are people complaining and grumbling. If Jesus is this great leader, if he is this great prophet, if he is anything he says he is, he should be here right now at this feast with us. Where is he? And so some people saying, well, you know what? I think he's a good man. I think he's all right. And others were saying, no, I think he's leading the people astray. But no one said anything publicly. So these were private, grumbling conversations that people were having in small groups or one-on-one. -on -one. No one was saying anything publicly. Here's the second, second judgment. Number two is concerning the character of Jesus. Second judgment that people make is concerning the character of Jesus. And here is the wrong judgment. The wrong judgment is that some were saying Jesus is a good man who seeks to win the favor of the world. But the right judgment, on the other side of that, is that Jesus is the God-man who seeks to do the will of the Father. Those are completely different ideas. If Jesus was a good man seeking to win the favor of the world... John 6, 66 and 67 would make no sense. Listen to this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, run and get him. Now he said, do you want to go away too? Jesus was not a political figure seeking for the world to love him but he was seeking genuine followers, genuine faithful followers. Jesus is not just a good man trying to seek the favor of the world, but Jesus is the God-man who is seeking to do the will of the Father. That's why at the beginning it said, my time has not yet come. God's timing is perfect. 
Jesus, being perfectly in sync with the Father, knows the timing that should come. And so, when it was time for him to go to Judea and to the festival, then he would go. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But we are not a people who seek to change Jesus into someone the world can readily accept. Right? It is not the goal of Jesus to be the fan favorite, to be this great political nice guy figure. So we should not turn him into that. The the picture of Jesus, I guess literal picture of Jesus I had since I was a kid, was what I call classic 70s Jesus. It's this picture with Jesus with long flowing hair, bright blue eyes, great, perfect smile with these nice white teeth. And he's white, by the way, also. None of that is true. I mean, yeah, I mean, Jesus may have had long hair. Okay, he probably did. That was customary. Uh, Jesus wasn't white. Uh, Jesus wasn't this, you know, great-looking figure. There was nothing amazing about his appearance. Uh, Probably didn't have perfect straight white teeth. Probably not. I don't know that. But even if he did, that would have been a weird cultural marker for them. He would have been the only one that did. But just as we change Jesus in pictures, don't we often change Jesus in our understandings of him and the way we represent him to the world? Is it not very easy to change Jesus into someone the world likes? But when we go about in this world, it should not come as a surprise to any of us that the world does not like the Jesus of the Bible. Don't let your heart sink and be empty and wonder, why do they not love my great Savior who I love? Why can they not see him the way I see him? This is no surprise to us. It was no surprise to Jesus that the world hated him. It should be no surprise to us that the world hates him. And so here we are caught in this balance that the greatest love of our soul, the world hates Has there ever been someone in your life that you love desperately and yet someone else does not like them, in fact, maybe even hates them? How do you you find the balance with that? How can you love or hate someone that I love? It's difficult, isn't it? But here we find ourselves living in a world that calls this great treasure of our soul worthless, meaningless garbage. They want to replace it with other things. Let's be careful not to change our great treasure into something that it's not. But let's rightly portray Jesus as who he was and who he is today. He is the God-man. He is not seeking to just win over the favor of the world, but instead he is seeking to do the will of the Father. He's seeking to do the will of the Father. He's not seeking his own glory. He's seeking the glory of the Father. But at this time, no one spoke publicly because they were scared of public opinion. It's like being an avid supporter of a particular politician. 
But for fear of what the world would say because you support that person, you don't get the yard sign or the bumper sticker or the T-shirt or the hat. Yeah, I secretly support that person, but I'm not going to say anything about it. You know, I'm not going to go around with it. Some of the people in the city were like this. I support Jesus, um, but I'm not going to say anything about it right now. So it continues. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. It's significant that he brings up glory here. Remember, there, there, there are glory seekers in this world. And his brothers were glory seekers. And he's saying, some of you are glory seekers. And if you're not seeking to glorify the Father, you're seeking to glorify yourself. So when he goes and he teaches, first of all, isn't it significant that he goes up in private and he goes up without a grand display of miracles. Just imagine the fanfare that Jesus could have had entering this city. The creator of the universe walks into a city. Don't you expect something big and miraculous? I mean, fireworks at the least. Nothing. He privately walks into the temple and without fanfare, without flash, without miracles, without works, he begins teaching the people. Teaching. Pretty amazing. Don't you love how Jesus always surprises you with what he does and what he doesn't do? Same Jesus is at work today, you know, not always doing what you think he's doing. <laughs> Keeps us on our toes. But he is always seeking the will of the Father. Always. So the Jews marveled. How does this man have learning? He's never studied. Now, formally, Jesus did not go through their little education system. So he says, now, who did you learn from? Oh, you haven't learned from anybody. You don't have any kind of degree. Who are you to be teaching us? Well, he learned from his father, which is pretty good for Jesus. By the way, he is God himself. So he has a little bit of wisdom to share with the world. And so when he gets up there and he begins teaching, remember, even at the age of 12, we remember, Jesus was blowing away the Jewish leaders at the time with what he knew and the wisdom that he had. And so Jesus begins teaching in his 30s. All these followers, all this news about him, and he teaches the people. Now, the judgment call here is about this teaching. It's concerning the teaching of God. So here it is. It's about glory. Here's the wrong judgment of the people. The wrong judgment is the people thinking, this teaching must benefit me. Whereas the right judgment would say, this teaching must benefit God. If anyone's will is to do the will of God, he is seeking his own glory. But if anyone's will is to do his own will, he is seeking his own glory. 
It says one in your notes, that's wrong. It's own. Seeing his own glory. So if you hear a teaching, has it ever been, possibly, that you have sat, even in this moment, you have sat and you have heard the teaching of God's word and you say, okay, where am I? This is all, this is all really good, by the way, but where am I? What are you going to do for me today? I haven't heard that yet. Because we are not here to seek our glory. We are here to seek the glory of the Father, of God himself. We're not here to become better people so that the world might marvel at how good a people we are. You're not here today that your heart might be encouraged that you can go live a victorious life. The victorious life has already been won in Christ. We could die tomorrow and live in a victorious life. We could go into poverty today and live the victorious life in Christ. Jesus gives us an example here in the next part of the text. He says, let me tell you how you've got the teaching of God wrong. Let me show you how you're seeking your own glory and not the glory of God. Verse 19. He says, has not Moses given you the law? He's setting them up. Yet none of you keeps the law. And of course, they're shocked by this. The religious leaders, highest class as you can get, closest to God as you could get, is so they thought. And Jesus says, you do not keep the law. So he backs this up. He says, why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? That's because, remember, they weren't saying these things in public, remember? They were all murmuring and grumbling amongst themselves, and Jesus knew what was in the people. Do you remember? Jesus knows what's in the heart of the people, and so he knows they're seeking to kill him. And Jesus answered them, verse 21, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I, man, I made a man's whole body well? And remember, he's referring to this one work was uh, uh, when Jimmy was preaching for us, the healing of the invalid on the Sabbath. John 5, 16 and 17, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was a Sabbath breaker. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. You can't tell me that God can't work. Jesus is saying, there's a contradiction here. You say that it's because of transgression against God's law that you're angry with me. But you transgressed God's law yourself based on the same principle. He's caught them in a logical concept here. He's saying, I broke the Sabbath, sure, to heal a man's whole body, but you break the Sabbath all the time when you circumcise people on the Sabbath. So if that's why you're angry at me, you, you should be angry with yourself. So he says, so tell me why you're really angry with me. That's what he's saying. Let, let's, let's cut down to it. Why are you actually angry with me? Because I know it's not this. You're blaming it on that, but that's not actually what it was. There's a different reason you hate me, and it's because I'm telling you the truth. It's because I'm teaching rightly. It's because I'm teaching 
the doctrine of God. We talked a couple of weeks ago about there's this uh, new idea. Well, it's not too new because we see it happening here, which is pretty old. But it's become very commonplace that when we read the Bible and we study theology, we have a narcissistic viewpoint, thinking, where am I? How does this benefit me? What am I going to get out of it already? So then we have whole churches that gather together, say, all right, what am I going to get out of this? What am I going to get out of this experience? And that's why churches then cater to that and say, oh, you want an experience, do you? We'll give you an experience. And that makes the people happy. Because they went away with a great experience. And they felt better for what? 30 seconds. Until they go to the parking lot and realize that life is still the same. What we have is so much greater than an experience. We have the salvation of our souls. We have a great Savior who is working today. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us, transforming us to the very truth of God. What's the temptation for us here? The temptation, of course, is to see that we're only in it for us and we're not in it for God's glory. Just take a very simple example. Let's say there's something particular in your life that you really, really enjoy. Okay, find it for yourself. I'm going to go back to my early college days. And I used to love a particular type of movie. Okay? And this type of movie was, was very, very uh, graphic and, and filled with violence and all this type of stuff. Okay? That's just, I grew up... Uh, uh, it wasn't only that, it was music. That's, that's a whole different thing for me, okay? Uh, many of you know that in my past, uh, which seems surprising to some. Yeah, believe it or not. Uh, so I, I, used to, I used to be into this whole world that was dark, and I loved it. But when I became a believer, I started to realize that there is, there's a message here, and there's a concept, and there's people and none of this really fits with the Christian worldview. There's like there's this part of the world and there's this part of the world, but I love that. Why can't I be a Christian and still love that? Because the Christian life is not about making me happy. The Christian life is about giving glory to God with everything. 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 We surrender all at the feet of Jesus Christ. All. We surrender everything in our life, all of our preferences, all of our desires, all of our likes, all of our dislikes. You know, none of that matters. What matters is seeking the glory of God. And sometimes that means you must embrace things that you personally do not like. That you might seek after God's glory. But my experience of that has been is when you seek after these things, your very nature of your heart begins to change, and the things you once used to hate, you now love. The things you once used to love, you now hate. Because this is the process of sanctification. The more holy, the more like Christ we become, the more we like the things that He likes. 
and the more we hate the things that he hates. And so our desires become unified. They will not reach that until one day when we are glorified with him eternally. But that is the work of life, isn't it? So we make judgment calls every single day. Some big, some little, some eternal. Jesus warns us in verse 24, therefore, he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You are all wrong on what you think about the world. You're wrong about what you think about Jesus. You're wrong about what you think about God's teachings. Judge these things with right judgment. This is what God would have for us today, that we would judge with right judgment. How can we do that? Well, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, as Jimmy read them earlier. Now I'll read them again. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm going to end with this passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Listen, that by testing you may discern, here's the judgment call, what is the will of God. And in that judgment call, in the will of God, that is what is good, and that is what is acceptable, and that is what is perfect. We learn in this text, there are many people in the world who make bad judgment calls concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. There may be some in this room who today have not yet seen the depth, the gravity, the weight of this decision that hangs in the balance. You must decide that either Jesus is leading the people astray or that he is the Messiah. And whether Jesus is just a figment of our imagination or whether he truly was this historical man. And if he was, that historical man who was God in the flesh has given us his word. And in that word, we find these. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Of course, the question today is, how much of your life is built on personal pleasures, desires, seeking your own glory today and not built on laying everything down? My life is a sacrifice. A sacrifice? If your life is a sacrifice, tell me, what are you sacrificing? We lay our life down. We live a new life by the Spirit of God. The old self has died. The new self is here. And that is the life that we live in praise to God. And so we must humbly bow before Him. Laying our pleasures, laying our desires, laying what we think is right, what we think is good down so that we might discern what is the will of God because those things are what are good acceptable and perfect and pleasing to him. Let's pray.